Sometime before I was called as a general authority, I faced a personal economic challenge that persisted for several years. It did not come about as a consequence of anyone's wrongdoing or ill will. It was just one of those things that sometimes come into our lives. It ebbed and flowed in seriousness and urgency, but it never went away completely. At times, this challenge threatened the welfare of my family and me, and I thought we might be facing financial ruin. I prayed for some miraculous intervention to deliver us. Although I offered that prayer many times with great sincerity and earnest desire, the answer in the end was no. Finally, I learned to pray as the Savior did. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. I sought the Lord's help with each tiny step along the way to a final resolution. With no other recourse more than once, I fell down before my Heavenly Father, begging in tears for His help. And He did help. Sometimes it was nothing more than a sense of peace, a feeling of assurance that things would work out. I might not see how or what the path would be, but He gave me to know that directly or indirectly He would open a way. Circumstances might change. A new and helpful idea might come to mind. Some unanticipated income or other resource might appear at just the right time. Somehow there was a resolution. Though I suffered then, as I look back now, I'm grateful that there was not a quick solution to my problem. The fact that I was forced to turn to God for help almost daily over an extended period of years taught me truly how to pray and get answers to prayer and taught me in a very practical way to have faith in God. I came to know my Savior and my Heavenly Father in a way and to a degree that might not have happened otherwise or that might have taken me much longer to achieve. I learned to trust in the Lord with all my heart. I learned to walk with Him day by day. day when I was a little boy, we traded paper hearts at school. Almost without exception, these valentines had printed on their face the words, I love you. I have since come to know that love is more than a paper heart. I had a friend who decided that his would be a scientific marriage, one built on the qualities of his wife rather than his feelings for her. He made a chart. At the top of each column, he set down some worthwhile quality such as beauty, education, ambition, a wealthy father, etc. <laughs> then down the side of his chart, he wrote the names of all the girls he knew. He then graded each and rated them in numerical order, one, two, three, four, etc. And he ended up marrying number four. Divorce followed shortly after that. I think of two other friends of about the same vintage, a boy and a girl. I knew them in the years of high school and university. He was a boy from a country town, plain in appearance, without money or apparent promise. 
but with all of his rustic appearance, he had a smile and a personality that seemed to sing of goodness. She was a city girl who had come out of a comfortable home, but she would never have qualified for a beauty contest. Something of magic took place between them. They fell in love. They married when people wondered how they could ever earn enough to stay alive. Now, 45 years and more have passed. They had lived with virtue and faith, with appreciation and respect for self and one another. In the years of their difficult professional and economic struggles, they had found their greatest earthly strength in their companionship. Now in age, they were finding their peace, their quiet satisfaction together. I could wish nothing better for each of you, my dear young friends, than love. Someone to be deliriously excited over, to be happy with. Someone to stir within you the very best that's there. To grow more appreciative of, more tender toward, more a part of as one year becomes another and life moves toward eternity. favorite description of a community comes from Jane Jacobs. She was living in the west side of New York City and she's upstairs looking out over the street and she sees a guy pulling a nine-year-old girl angrily. So she's about to go down to check out the situation but as she's walking down she notices the butcher has come out of his butcher shop. The lady at the fruit stand has come out into the street. The locksmith has come out into the street. And she writes, that guy didn't realize it, but he was surrounded. There were people there ready to act if he did anything wrong. And that's to me what community is. It's a bunch of people looking after each other, a bunch of people seeing each other and seeing each other deeply, taking the time to really enter into relationship with each other and to depend upon one another. And to me, the end result of all this is a sort of joyfulness you can be happy alone, you win a game, you get a promotion, you feel big about yourself. Happiness is the expansion of self, but joy is the merger of self. It's the kind of thing that happens when you forget where you end and something else begins. When you really are seeing deeply into each other. My freshman year, there was one goal that sounded like it would etch my name into athletic immortality. That would be being named an All-American. To become All-American meant making it to the national meets and then finishing in the top six in your event. That year, nationals were held in Austin, Texas, where there was an incredible heat wave taking place. With two laps to go, I could tell I was losing ground. 
By the sound of the sloshing shoes approaching, I could tell that two runners were gaining, and if both of them passed, I would go from All-American my freshman year to almost All-American. One of the runners passed, and one was now on my shoulder, and I dug for all that I had, and then something happened. Suddenly, my world was in slow motion, and instead of running in a straight line like you want to do in a race, I was running a little to the left and a little to the right as I started weaving down the track. And I watched as the two runners pulled away from me as my all-American dreams my freshman year disappeared. The only clear memories I have after this were being dragged from the track and me saying, I need a finish, and my coach saying, you're finished, Ed. Believe me, you're finished. Then he went on, Ed, today you ran like a horse. He could still tell I was not impressed by the simile. <laughs> so, so he explained further, you know, a good mule you can take up in the mountains and a mule will do a lot of work for you. But when a mule gets tired, he will stop and you can push it, you can pull it, you can motivate it with a stick. But until it is recovered, it will go nowhere. If you have a good horse, you can run with that horse until it drops over, completely exhausted or completely dead. Today, you ran like a horse. Many times we're gonna do everything possible to accomplish our goals, but the nature of life is that sometimes despite doing all the right things, we're gonna come up a little short. But if we've done everything in our power, if we've run like a horse, then that is all that is required can hold our heads high. Most of us clearly understand that the atonement is for sinners. I am not so sure, however, that we know and understand that the atonement is also for saints. For good men and women who are obedient and worthy and conscientious, and who are striving to become better and serve more faithfully. I frankly do not think many of us get it concerning this enabling and strengthening aspect of the atonement, and I wonder if we mistakenly believe we must make the journey from good to better and become a saint all by ourselves through sheer grit, willpower, and discipline, and with our obviously limited capacities. Brothers and sisters, the gospel of the Savior is not simply about avoiding bad in our lives. It also is essentially about doing and becoming good. And the atonement provides help for us to overcome and avoid bad, and to do and become good. There is help from the Savior for the entire journey of life, from bad to good to better, and to change our very nature. There is no physical pain no anguish of soul, no suffering of spirit, no infirmity or weakness that you or I ever experienced during our mortal journey that the Savior did not experience first. You and I in a moment of weakness may cry out, no one understands, no one knows. No human being perhaps knows, but the Son of God perfectly knows and understands. He has perfect empathy, and can extend to us his arm of mercy in so many phases of our life.
Now the why in the mountain has its own inauspicious origins. Its roots trace back to a rivalry between two classes of students only three years after Brigham Young Academy became a full-fledged university. In the spring of 1906, the junior class at the high school decided to demonstrate its superiority to the senior class by etching a large 07 on the mountainside. Not surprisingly, upon awakening to that site, the senior class objected. There then ensued what one author described as an all-day mountainside altercation, with punches exchanged on both sides. BYU President George Brimhall and BY High Principal Edwin Hinckley assembled a group, and a decision was made to have all classes join together to put the letters B, Y, and U on the mountainside. The project began with a Y to ensure that the letters would be properly centered on the mountain. The group started in the early morning with the expectation that the job would be completed by 10 a.m. But the task proved much bigger than the group had thought. The effort was so exhausting that in the words of one involved, no attempt was made to cover the other two letters. <laughs> and the Y was left standing by itself. And yet there is in that history two brief interrelated lessons that I offer as my advice to the graduating class today. First, symbols such as the Y on the Y mountain ultimately gain meaning in our lives, not so much because of their physical shape or presence, but because of what we choose to make of them. Likewise, the meaning of events in our lives will be determined not so much by the events themselves, but on how we choose to view and respond to them. If we choose to view events in our lives from the eternal perspective that emanates from an understanding of God's eternal plan of salvation, our lives will be more productive, happier, and we will have greater strength to meet the challenges that will inevitably come our way. In times when you feel like you have failed, that nothing is going right, and that there is nothing that can be done about it, you can, and I pray that you will, trust God's remarkable promise that he can make all things work together for the good of those who love him. God is that good and that powerful. We just need to trust him. Last year, as I was battling cancer for the fourth time and going through treatment, the soccer team came up with the Carolyn Can campaign. Believing that if anyone could beat cancer, it was me. Coach Jennifer Rockwood purchased shirts for everyone to wear. Words cannot express how inspiring this act was for me. Every day was a struggle to get out of bed and choose to fight. I would dread going to radiation, but often it was in that moment that I would receive a text reminding me that Carolyn can, or I would see the girls wearing their shirts and their yellow wristbands and their hope, faith, and energy, which was so contagious, would provide the strength I needed to continue to fight. Not every day was this simple. There were many days where I didn't have a bounce in my step or that it was hard to smile or laugh. And I found on those days, my victory was simply just enduring the day. But because my soccer team lifted and served me, I found the energy to make it through each day. 
and stay yoked with my Savior, who carried enough of my load so I could continue to press forward. The scenes leading to his crucifixion were filled with choices. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he had a choice. All things are possible unto thee. He pled with his Father, Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but thou wilt. At times he used his agency to be silent. On the cross he chose mercy, praying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He chose to endure, not just the agony of physical death, but the terrible separation from his father, with whom he had always been. After three days in the garden tomb, he chose to take up his body again and break the bands of death. He appeared to Mary Magdalene and many other believers. He chose to teach them, feed them, encourage them in the work of the kingdom that was now theirs. He chose to appear to the people on this continent. Then high above the ruins of Bountiful, he chose to descend, to call the people forth to minister to them, one by one, and bless their children. This was our Heavenly Father's plan to allow His Son to fully exercise His agency, to complete His work on His own. I pray we may freely, willingly choose to live our lives for Him and to lift and strengthen others. Our son, Matt, recently married a, a wonderful young woman from Oregon. And as my wife, Linda, and I were driving to the reception in Oregon, we reminisced about our own courtship and marriage. And the more we talked, the more I remembered how immature I was when we got married. Finally, in bewilderment, I asked Linda, why did you marry me? Her simple answer was, I saw potential. <clears throat> as we search for a mate with whom we can spend the eternities, therefore, we would do well to remember Elder Richard G. Scott's counsel that mirrors my wife's comments. He said, I suggest that you not ignore many possible candidates who are still developing these attributes, seeking the one who is perfected in them. You will likely not find that perfect person, and if you did, there would certainly be no interest in you. These attributes are best polished together as husband and wife. That you may marry the right person in the right place at the right time is my prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. First of all, I'd like to describe marriage as that of like climbing a mountain. And what you will do, you will tie yourself to a companion and you'll start up the mountain of life. As a child comes along, you tie them to mom and dad and you continue your journey. They will be totally dependent on you for a period. The ropes will hold all of the mountain climbers together, but there are many elements. The wind and the rain, the snow and the ice. All the elements of the world will tear at you to pull you off that eternal mountain. How do you reach the summit? If either mom and dad cut the rope which binds them, the chances are that one or the other may fall off the mountain and you pull the rest of the family with you. Let us always be mindful also that you represent possibly as older brothers and sisters. You are tied also 
on this mountain team that's attempting to return back into the presence of your Heavenly Father. And if you cut the road that binds you between mom and dad or the younger brothers and sisters behind you and you should fall off the mountain, the chances are that you'll take one or two of your brothers or sisters with you. Lift me and I'll lift thee and we'll ascend together. That's the message. A marriage partnership is not a crutch. You do not marry somebody who you think is a little higher than the angels and then lean on them and slow them down. You develop yourself and your own gifts and talents. As she develops hers, you develop yours. And then you grow together. Twenty-two years ago, Jeff and I, marriage certificate in hand, made our way to Brigham Young University. We put all we owned in a second-hand Chevrolet and headed for Provo. We were not uneasy. We were not frightened. We were terrified. We were just little hayseeds from St. George, Utah. And here we were in Provo at Brigham Young University, where the world was to be our campus. I remember one of those first nights, walking in a beautiful August evening up from our apartment on 3rd North. Pat and I were arm in arm and very much in love. But school had not started and there seemed to be so very, very much at stake. We were nameless, faceless, meaningless little undergraduates seeking our place in the sun. I remember standing about halfway between the Mazer building and the president's home and being suddenly overwhelmed with the challenge I faced. New marriage, new life, new family, new education, no money, no confidence. I remember turning to Pat and holding her in the beauty of that evening and fighting back the tears. I stuttered and said, do you think we can do it? Do you think we can compete with all of these people in all these buildings who know so much more than we do and are so able? Do you think we've made a mistake? And then I said, do you think we should withdraw from school and go home? I saw, probably for the first time, what I would see again and again and again in her. The love, the confidence, the staying power, the reassurance, the careful handling of my fears and the sensitive nurturing of my faith, especially my faith in myself. She, who must have been terrified, especially now linked to me for life, nevertheless in that spot set aside her doubts, slammed shut the hatch on the airplane and grabbed me by the safety belt. Of course we can do it, she said. Of course we're not going home. And then standing there, almost literally in the evening shadows of a home we would much later, for a time, call our own. She reminded me that surely others were feeling the same thing, that what we had in our heart was enough to see us through, and that a Father in Heaven would surely help us. Please don't feel you're the only ones who have ever been fearful or vulnerable or alone, before marriage or after. Everyone has from time to time, and perhaps everyone yet will. Help each other, 
You don't have to be married to do that. Just be a friend to each other. Be a BYU student and all that that means. Be a Latter-day Saint. And if you are married, no greater blessing can come to your union than some of the troubles and challenges you face. In honor of Martin Luther King Jr., who was recently listed in Ted Stewart's The Mark of a Giant as one of seven people who changed the world, I start with an example from his life that so clearly highlights these principles. Look for courage, action, and grace as I read his words. Quote, almost immediately after the bus boycott started, we began to receive threatening telephone calls and letters. They increased as time went on. One night I couldn't sleep. It seemed all of my fears had come down on me at once. I had heard these things before, but for some reason that night it got to me. I went to the kitchen and I sat there and thought about a beautiful little daughter who had just been born. I started thinking about a dedicated and loyal wife who was over there asleep and she could be taken from me or I could be taken from her. And I got to the point that I couldn't take it any longer. With my head in my hands, I bowed over the kitchen table and prayed aloud. Lord, I'm down here trying to do what's right. I think I'm right. I'm taking a stand for what I believe is right. But Lord, I must confess that I'm weak now. I'm faltering. I'm losing my courage. Now I'm afraid. I have nothing left. I've come to the point where I can't face it alone. I could hear the quiet assurance of an inner voice saying, Martin Luther, stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. And lo, I will be with you, even until the end of the world. I tell you, I heard the voice of Jesus saying, still fight on. He promised never to leave me alone. And at that moment, I experienced the presence of the divine as I'd never experienced him before. Almost at once, my fears began to go. My uncertainty disappeared. I was ready to face anything. Could you see the pathway to healing? Courage to face a difficult situation and stand for truth acting in faith by turning to God in prayer, and peace and strength from the Lord through His grace. Courage, action, grace. I'd like to visit with you about resolutions. Resolutions to conform our lives more closely to what we already know about the gospel. I'm sure that some of us have made a bundle of New Year's resolutions and maybe a few of us haven't chosen to make any because in prior years we've had problems keeping them. Don't overlook the power that making good resolutions can have to help make your life happier and more successful regardless of your past behavior. When a diseased woman, who was shunned by all others, approached him for help and took hold of his garment, he neither condemned nor dismissed her, but blessed her. When a fallen woman approached him to wash his feet, Christ didn't chastise her, but instead accepted her act of charity. When the Pharisees criticized him for dining with a publican, a man who represented the wrong profession, the wrong politics, and an alien occupying nation, Christ rebuked them, saying that his word and his love was for all. Finally, when Jesus saw the Samaritan woman at the well, he did not shun her as taboo would demand for being a woman and a Samaritan, but spoke to her, 
taught her and loved her. Likewise, his parables taught that we need to love and care for all people, not just those like us, but because all are of worth to him. He is teaching that a measure of our discipleship to him is how we treat all others. Do we pass judgment on and pass over others, or do we stop to aid and minister unto them? You have done all I have asked you to do and more, but your country is at stake, your wives, your homes, and all you hold dear. You have worn yourselves out with fatigues and hardships. If you will consent to stay one month longer, you will render that service to the cause of liberty and to your country, which you can probably never do under any other circumstance. Again, the drums rolled, and this time, the men began stepping forward. God Almighty, wrote Nathaniel Green, inclined their hearts to listen to the proposal, and they engaged anew. Is there anyone who doesn't participate in society for some reason? Somebody who's on the periphery because of language or background or disability or religion, family status or life choices, anything that they're not fully participating in the circle? And can we think of them as brothers and sisters? Can we serve them? If we change our perspective so that caring for the poor and the needy is less about giving stuff away and more about filling the hunger for human contact, then the Lord can send us someplace. There's always humanitarian places that we can't reach, but there are plenty that we can reach. And remember that in the same way as the Savior, you yourself are one of the best gifts that you can give to other people in need. In March of 2008, two of my former students, Mike and Taylor, invited my family to go spelunking in Spanish Moss Cave. The initial descent is a corkscrew-shaped crack in the rocks which twists downward for 15 to 20 feet before it finally opens into the domed roof of the cave. The return trip was harder than the descent. We clambered back up to the domed room, but the real challenge remained. This time, we would be climbing up with the assistance of ascenders, instead of dropping effortlessly down. I gathered myself and continued up the remaining visible length of rope until the top ascender would move no further. Fear took hold of me, and I had neither the strength nor the fortitude to let go. Every muscle in my body shook, and I began to contemplate what living in a cave might be like. In this panic-stricken state, I heard Mike talking above me. He was telling me to relax, to stay calm, giving me instructions on where to reach. I could not see any suitable handholds, so I told Mike, I cannot do this. I remember hearing some movement above me, then Mike telling me to take his hand. You're just going to pull me up one-handed? Sure, he said confidently. Looking up again, I was seized with the realization that I really didn't want to stay in that cave forever. I wanted to go home. This awareness gave me the courage to trust Mike and reach for his hand. One moment I was dangling from the dome, and the next I was wedged into the crevice, still clinging to one ascender with my free hand. I could finally relax my arms. 
Perhaps you would have fared better than I did in Spanish Moss Cave. But we all, at one time or other, will be in a situation where our strength, or knowledge, or skill, or perhaps even our desire, is not enough. These are the times that your Savior pulls you up out of the darkness if you will let go and take his hand. I asked Mike recently whether he was ever concerned about getting me out of the cave that day. Without even thinking about the answer, he replied, No, there is always a way. Sometimes it's 5% me and 95% the other person. Sometimes it's 99% me and 1% the other person. But I know I can work with whatever the person has to give. Our Savior is the same. He can work with whatever you have to give if you're willing to accept His help. More than you may recognize, you carry with you a light, a light that others notice. You brought much of that light with you to BYU thanks to your parents, your friends, your teachers, and the good choices you have made in your life up until now. My invitation to you today is that you enhance that light during your experience at BYU, or more precisely, that you enhance that light because of your experience at BYU. I urge you to let the why light you in such a way that you are filled with that light. You will then be successful not only in this particular educational endeavor, but also in the rest of your life. The movement of tens of thousands to these valleys of the West was fraught with every imaginable hazard, including death, whose grim reality was familiar to every wagon train and every handcart company. You're familiar with their story. You're the fruit of all of their planning and of all of their labors. They laid the foundation. Ours is the duty to build on it, shining above all of their principles and ideals was their solemn and wonderful belief in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior and Redeemer. They knew Him. They put their faith in Him. Whether you have pioneer ancestry or came into the church only yesterday, you are a part of this whole grand picture of which those men dreamed. There have been reminders recently of the golden age of manned spaceflight, particularly the Apollo missions to the moon in the 1960s. These were incredible feats of science and engineering. Before they could land on the moon, however, their spacecraft had to be slowed to enter a lunar orbit. This meant doing something that, as with so much of this endeavor, had never been done before, and that was to travel around the far side of the moon, or so-called dark side of the moon. All the way there, the crew had been able to be in constant radio contact with mission control in Houston. But when it came time for them to go around the far side of the moon, communication would be lost, as the moon would quite literally be between the spacecraft and the Earth. For 45 agonizing minutes, all communication was lost with the crew. 
All they could do at Mission Control in Houston was wait and hope, wait and pray as each of those 45 minutes ticked tensely by. What if a problem arose and there were a malfunction of some kind? How would Mission Control know and how could they possibly help? Well, that spacecraft did emerge from around the far side of the moon. The radio signal was reacquired and Mission Control must have erupted with shouts of relief and joy as the safety of the crew was confirmed. And so it can so easily be for us. In order to continue our progression on the course the Lord would have us set and return safely back to our eternal home, we must remain in constant communication with Him. I actually had a horse that helped me appreciate the amazing process of change. When our children were young, my wife and I looked for a gentle, well-broke children's horse. Our neighbor had such a horse, but he would sell us kind and gentle Bob only if we bought his other horse, Stubby. The names alone described the horses, and Stubby ended up being, as expected, a stubborn, strong-willed, obnoxious animal that consistently acted up and caused trouble. I decided to do all I could to bring about a change in Stubby's disposition. I gave him consequences for bad behavior and rewarded him for good behavior. Over a period of 10 to 15 years, Stubby developed into an exceptional lead horse. He began allowing me to guide and control him without resistance. In fact, Stubby made such a turnaround that we changed his name to Spinner. We would say in horse lingo that he was well broke. Spinner gave up his natural will and aligned his will with his master's will. In a similar, though much more meaningful way, we are invited to change. In the New Testament we read, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Blessings do come as we submit our will to Heavenly Father. And the more fully we submit our will to Him, the richer the blessings. Christ's arrangement with us is similar to a mom providing music lessons for her child. Mom pays the piano teacher. Because mom pays the debt in full, she can turn to her child and ask for something. Practice. Does the child's practice pay the piano teacher? No. Well, does the child's practice repay mom for paying the piano teacher? No. Practicing is how the child shows appreciation for mom's incredible gift. It is how he takes advantage of the amazing opportunity mom is giving him to live his life at a higher level. Mom's joy is not found in getting repaid, but in seeing her gift used, seeing her child improve. And so she continues to call for practice, practice, practice. But this practice has a different purpose than punishment or payment. Its purpose is change. Christ's grace is sufficient to help us in that process. Brother Wilcox, 
I mean, don't you realize how hard practice is? I mean, I'm just not very good at the piano. I hit a lot of wrong notes, and it takes me forever to get it right. Now wait, isn't that all part of the learning process? When a young pianist hits a wrong note, we don't say he is not worthy to keep practicing. We don't expect him to be flawless. We just expect him to keep trying. Perfection may be his ultimate goal, but for now, we can be content with progress in the right direction. In the early 17th century, Sweden was a world power. Sweden's king, Gustav II Adolf, commissioned a warship that would be christened the Vasa. After construction had begun, Gustav Adolf ordered the Vasa to be made longer. Because the width supports had already been built, the king directed the builders to increase the ship's length without increasing its width. Although the shipwrights knew that doing so would compromise Vasa's seaworthiness, they were hesitant to tell the king something they knew he didn't want to hear. They complied. On August 10th, 1628, the Vasa began its maiden voyage. A stronger wind entered its sails and the ship began to tip. The Vasa righted itself slightly, but only temporarily. Before long, as recorded by an observer, she heeled right over and water gushed in through the gun ports until she went to the bottom under sail, pennants, and all. The Vasa's maiden voyage was about 4,200 feet. Despite Vasa's magnificent appearance, the ship wasn't seaworthy. The alterations in its construction resulted in it not having sufficient lateral stability to enable safe seafaring. For us to successfully navigate our mortal sojourn, we also need sufficient spiritual stability to confront crosswinds and cross currents, to make the necessary turns, and then to return safely home to our heavenly home. Working with the physical laws related to lateral stability in the ship's construction might have felt restrictive to Gustav Adolf, but the Vasa would not have sunk before its mission started. Instead, it would have had the freedom and flexibility to accomplish what it was intended to do. So too, obedience to God's laws preserves our freedom, flexibility, and our ability to achieve our potentials. I could hardly sleep the night before my first day as a nurse. I remember so vividly the spring air was cool and the sun seemed unusually bright. I carefully pulled on my support hose and put on my little white nylon dress and my ugly prescription shoes. But my crowning glory was the starched white cap that held my long hair tucked tightly beneath. I couldn't wait to handle the instruments, titrate the fluids, and perform the treatment procedures. I wanted to cure. I wanted to care. I wanted to heal. I've learned a lot about healing since that day. I've learned that healing is a process of restoring and becoming whole. Sometime in your life, you will likely know a crashing crisis or a heavy heartache that will threaten all sense of logic or hope or certainty, and from which, no matter how you emerge, nothing will be the same. Maybe someone you counted on wasn't there for you. 
Perhaps someone in your past hurt you deeply and you can never change that. I know that pain. Pain is part of living and pain brings us to healing. We can partake of the healing medicine of the atonement of our Savior who promised, I have heard thy prayer, I have seen thy tears, behold, I will heal thee. Nearly every day, someone in your path is hurting. Someone is afraid. Someone feels inadequate. Someone needs a friend. Someone needs you to notice, to reach out, and to help him or her to heal. You can serve in the cause of the Master Healer. Carl G. Mazur was probably the most refined and educated, certainly one of the most refined and educated men to join this church in its first 50 years of existence. Several years after Brother Mazur's death, a proposal was made to construct a memorial building in his name. Not downtown on University Avenue, but high atop Temple Hill, where a new campus might be built consisting of as many as three or perhaps four buildings someday. The faculty and the student body did take heart that in 1912 the Mazur building was at least partially complete and the university would give diplomas to its first four-year graduating class. But even as graduation plans were being made, equally urgent plans were underway to sell the remainder of Temple Hill for the development of a new Provo suburb. The university simply had to have the money to survive. The graduation services would conclude with a sales pitch to the community leaders in attendance. When Alfred Kelly was introduced that morning as the student speaker, he arose and stood absolutely silent for several moments. Some in the audience, in fact, thought he had lost the power of speech. Slowly, he began to speak, explaining that he'd been much concerned over his remarks, that he'd written several versions and discarded every one of them. And then early one morning, he walked north to where the partially completed Mazer building stood. He wanted to gain inspiration from this hope of a new campus, but he felt only grim disappointment. Kelly then turned his eyes toward the valley below, which was also still in shadow. As morning came, the light gradually worked down from the hilltops and slowly advanced to the spot where Kelly stood. He said he partially closed his eyes as the light approached and yet was startled by what he could still see. He stood as if transfixed. In the advancing sunlight, everything he saw took on the appearance of people. Young people about his age, moving toward Temple Hill. He saw hundreds of them, thousands of them, coming into view. He said he knew they were students because they carried books in their arms as they came. And then Temple Hill was bathed in sunlight and the whole of our present campus was illuminated, not with one partially completed building, not with homes in a modern subdivision, but with what Kelly described to that graduating class in 1912 as temples of learning, large buildings, beautiful buildings, hundreds of buildings which covered the top of that hill and stretched clear to the mouth of Rock Canyon. The students entered these temples of learning with their books in their hand. As they came out of them, Kelly said their countenances bore a smile of hope and of faith. He observed that they seemed cheerful and very confident. Kelly sat down. 
to what was absolutely stone-deaf, rock-solid silence. Not a word was spoken. What about the sales pitch? No one moved or whispered. Then longtime BYU benefactor Jesse Knight jumped to his feet and shouted, We won't sell an acre. We won't sell a single lot. And he turned to President George Brimhall and pledged several thousand dollars to the future of the university. Soon others stood and joined in, some with only a widow's might, but every one of them believing in the dream of a provost schoolboy. Every one of them believing in the destiny of a great university which that day had scarcely begun. There is no physical pain, no anguish of soul, no suffering of spirit, no infirmity or weakness that you or I ever experienced during our mortal journey that the Savior did not experience first. You and I in a moment of weakness may cry out, no one understands, no one knows. No human being perhaps knows, but the Son of God perfectly knows and understands. For he felt and bore our burdens before we ever did. And because he paid the ultimate price and bore that burden, he has perfect empathy and can extend to us his arm of mercy in so many phases of our life. He can reach out, touch, and succor, literally run to us and strengthen us to be more than we could ever be and help us to do that which we could never do by relying only upon our own power.